0: Hey, good morning, everyone. You know, we got a theme going. First, we had Emily, who's amazing, who shared with us. And then we have Lee, who spoke after her, who just gave us a real challenge, right, to, to serve and, and to be not a dead sea where everything is dead because nothing flow out, flows out of it, but to be a sea of Galilee that has life and things flow from it, right? And now you have Stevie, okay? So we got this E thing so don't ever call me Stevie. Really, seriously. When I was in the second grade, I was traumatized. My mom bought me this bracelet. It said Stevie on it, and I'm like, "Oh my gosh, I have to wear this now." Just traumatic, but okay, never mind. Too much information. It's great to be with you this morning. I um, I've been praying over and thinking about what God would have us to share this morning. What does it mean? to be committed to Jesus. Big question, what does it mean to be committed to Jesus? For the last few weeks, we have been in a sermon series that has been focusing on Jesus and our relationship to him. Now last week, Lydia Rowe gave us a a challenging and encouraging message about personal commitment to Jesus and what that means. She said some amazing things. She, she emphasized that Jesus first gave all of himself to us and for us, right? And in response, he wants us to give all of ourselves to him, not just part, not just halfway married, not just halfway committed, but all in response to everything he gave to us. She then said, ironically, this, this crazy idea that, that Jesus wants us to deny ourselves, to, to, to die to ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him so that we can find life. I mean, is, is, that, is that crazy? I mean, is that an upside? We're, we're supposed to deny ourselves, to die to ourselves and, and so that we can find real abundant life wow that was some that was some meat to chew on for you meat eaters that was a that that's some meat to chew on all week long and far beyond that this morning I want to pick up on that theme of what does it mean to be committed to Jesus and I want to I want to focus on another aspect of that namely how does our commitment to Jesus affect our conduct or our behavior? How does does my relationship with Jesus affect the way that I live, the way that I treat myself, the way that I treat others, and the way that I treat God? Big question. Big question. Turn with me, if you will, to Titus chapter 2. If you brought your Bibles today, you brought your smartphones or something in between Titus chapter 2, and for those of you who don't have any of that, it will be up on the screen here momentarily. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. There we go. Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now to fully understand the magnitude of what Paul is saying here, I want to give you a little bit of background, so I think it's important to understand the context in which Paul writes this letter to Titus. First of all, Paul is writing this letter to him toward the end of Paul's ministry. The apostle Paul began his missionary journeys to spread the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and to plant churches across the Roman Empire around 48 AD. Now, this would have been about 18 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, he writes this letter to one of his colleagues, Titus, around the mid-60s AD, maybe around 65 AD, and so much was going on in the Roman Empire at this time. Nero, who was the Roman Emperor, had just burned a significant portion of Rome in 64 AD and, and, and blamed the Christians and the Jews for this. So there was great persecution occurring in Rome in that vicinity toward Christians and Jews. It was, a, it was a tough time, to say the least, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so about 15 to 20 years after Paul began his missionary journeys and toward the end of his life when he was beheaded around 67 AD, Paul writes this letter to Titus. Now, Titus is a Gentile Christian. He's not a Jew. He's not like Paul, but he's a Gentile. But he's exactly the kind of person that that Paul had been commissioned by Jesus himself to take the good news to. He was was an apostle, a messenger, to take the gospel to the nations, which means the Gentiles, and Titus was one of them. He was a younger man, not, not as old as Paul, but he had been a close and fellow missionary companion with Paul throughout his missionary journeys. And Paul essentially had trained and discipled Titus as a follower and co laborer with Christ. Now, at the time that Paul writes this letter to Titus, Titus is located on an island called Crete, which is located off the coast of Greece. I've got a map to show you here. It's coming there. So that's a map of the Mediterranean Sea. And if you look pretty much in the middle of the map, you'll see this island called Crete. It's located off the coast of of Greece and today is is a part of Greece. Now it's kind of a jagged sort of hot dog shaped looking island. It's about 125 miles long and 25 miles wide. And when it gets to be like 10 below in the wintertime, you want to pull this up on your Google searches and look at some of the photos, okay? Because it looks like an amazing place to go and spend some time when it's cold outside. Now, Paul was writing to this letter to Titus, and he, he's writing it to him because Titus is still on the island. In fact, Paul had been with Titus on the island of Crete, preaching the gospel and forming the local church or churches on that island and teaching the believers about Jesus. But he left the island, and he left Titus behind. And he left Titus behind to to accomplish two significant tasks. And we learned about these tasks in chapter 1 of his letter to Titus. First, he says, he wants Titus to complete the organization of the church, or the churches in Crete, by appointing qualified leaders of these churches. Paul knows that if the message of the gospel is going to be preserved, then the churches need to be led by God. God-fearing, God-loving men and or women. But Paul essentially describes these leaders as elders or overseers, and he states in Titus and in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy what the qualifications of those persons should be. I'm going to try to hold this microphone right here so I don't go in and out. I'm sorry, okay? I'm kind of moving around. All right. So he says, first of all, I need you, Timothy, to complete the work of choosing leaders for these churches. But secondly, he wanted Titus to take the necessary steps to preserve the gospel message itself and, 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 to, and to keep the, the local church or other leaders from contaminating that gospel message by engaging in false teachings or engaging in bad conduct that was inconsistent with the message of the gospel and what it meant to live as a follower of Jesus. Now, apparently, Paul had received some news since he left Crete, and that there were persons in the Cretan church who were deceiving people through false messages, false teachings, and through bad conduct. So he uses some really strong language in chapter 1 to talk about these people and to to emphasize that Titus needs to take action to stop this. For instance, he says things like, they must be silenced, these false teachers, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Then he goes on as if he was making a social media post and and he quotes one one of the Cretan philosophers from the 6th century BC. I mean like 550 years ago, right? But no, he pulls this out of the resources of his files, and he says this, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, and this testimony is true. I mean, wow. That's, that's some hard stuff, right? But Paul is like, you know, he he's, he's says something needs to be done to stop this. It really reaches the height of what he's calling Titus to do in verse 16 of chapter 1 where he says this and I want you to get this they profess to know God but they deny him by their works they are detestable disobedient and unfit for any good work do you get that that's some strong language and you can sense how serious this is to Paul. For Paul, you see, our relationship with God is inseparable from how we live and how we conduct our lives. In more plain language, Paul is saying that you cannot say that you truly know God, that you have an intimate relationship with him and yet live contrary to to his teachings and the gospel. Serious stuff. So, in chapter 2 of Titus, Paul tells Titus to teach the Cretans what it means to live as a follower of Christ, and he gets down into the, the very much the nitty-gritty. Literally, going through the family structure of the time, he, he tells Titus, listen, this is how You should teach older men to live, older Christians. And this is how you should teach older women Christians in the church to live. And this is how you should teach younger women Christians in the church to live. And this is how you should teach younger men to live as followers of Christ. And this is how you should teach even slaves who were in some of their families to live as a follower of Christ. But when I read this and when you read it, it sort of begs the question why? Why does my conduct or my behavior, whether it's good, bad, or ugly, matter if I'm a Christian. In, in moments that we have left today, I want to take this text apart with you that we looked at, Titus 2, verses 11 to 14, because in this section, Paul tells us why our conduct matters. Now, if you look at verses 11 and 14, Paul starts this section by saying, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. If you drop down to verse 14, in talking about Christ again, he says, Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And what we're talking about is, is essentially how our relationship with God begins. We were broken and separated from God, and we're separated from God by our sin. And essentially what Paul knows and what Paul is trying to convey is that when we and if we commit our lives to Jesus Christ, then God's grace through Jesus, death on the cross, redeems us from the punishment for our sinful behavior, which is death, eternal separation from God. Now, I don't want to pass by this too quickly because if you are a follower of Christ you can never forget the sacrifice that he made for us it is at the heart of our relationship it is that recognition whereby our relationship with him begins where we recognize we have nothing in and of ourselves that deserves any favor from God but because of what Jesus did on the cross He took my place and your place on the cross. The scriptures say in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is freely given to us because of his sacrifice on the cross because we could get it no other way. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. But because of the magnitude of his love, he came to us, as Lydia said so eloquently last week, he gave himself for us. We're approaching Easter. But before Easter came the cross. That's where our relationship begins. For the grace of God appeared. It appeared in Jesus Christ, bringing salvation for all people. Paul's not saying that everyone is saved. Everyone can be, but, but, but not everyone is. But, but what he's saying is Jews and Gentiles are saved. For the good news of Jesus Christ has come to all the nations and has appeared. And that that was God's plan all along. And he's redeeming us. Verse 14, he's redeeming us. The idea there is that he's paying a price for us. We were captive, and what we were captive to, we were captive to our sin. And he paid the price so that we could have a relationship with God again. Now, this is where the relationship begins. The great adventure begins. I remember when I first met my lovely wife Sue, who's down here in the front. Yeah? She's worthy. I, uh, I, I I looked up a local church. I had just moved to Cincinnati. I was starting to law school, and, and uh, I showed up at the church late. And there was this uh, blonde-headed lady up front singing. I'm, I'm just about halfway through the service, and she was very easy on the eyes, and 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 she was she could sing, and I felt called. <laughs> you ever had that calling? I mean, men, you know what I mean. You understand the word calling right away when I say I was called, right? And so then I had to figure out how to get to, like, how do I get to even get in this presence of this person so she know. So I decided, of course, to join the choir. I heard she was in the choir. So I showed up early, Okay. She arrives and, 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 and she takes a seat, and I go over and sort of inconspicuously place myself right behind her in in the choir room. And my goal, of course, well, is not really, sadly, to sing so much, but to sing loud enough so that at some point in time she would have to turn around and see who this fool is behind her that is singing so loud. And of course, it worked. <laughs> she did. She turned around and I said, "Oh, hi, I'm Steve Justice." Oh, but, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, we began to date. A year and a half later, we got married. Our relationship moved to another level. Yeah. But listen, we all knew, and I knew, and she knew, that that was just the beginning of our relationship. Just the beginning. Now, 28 years later, recently, I graduated with my WTH bachelor's degree. W-T-H meaning well-trained husband, okay? Did you all get the announcement, this graduation announcement? You didn't? It was a great ceremony. I mean, she said a number of wonderful things about me, and at the end, it was just so precious. She said, listen, honey, I just want to encourage you to go on and um, get your W-I-A-R, your wire master's degree. I'm like, what? She says, yeah, W-I-A-R, wife is always right. Master's degree. So precious, yeah. It only took me 28 years to get my bachelor's. (laughs) But when we come to know Christ, that's where our relationship with God begins. But it doesn't end there. Look at verse 12. What does this grace of God do once we come to know him? Verse 12 says that the grace of God trains us trains us to renounce ungodliness and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in this present age. In other words if we are committed to Jesus then God's grace trains or teaches us to renounce sinful behavior and Instead, to conduct ourselves in a godly manner. Now, I want you to catch the fullness of this. Notice that Paul uses the word trains, that the grace of God trains us. He has in mind something like a coach or a mentor. And those of you who have participated in any kind of sports or maybe you've had business counseling or any sort of endeavor where you've had a coach or a mentor, you understand the value of a coach. You understand that the coach can help to train you, but you don't increase in your skill. You don't change your behavior. You don't break through in your diet. You don't run your business differently unless you do what the coach says, (laughs) (laughs) I mean you could read diet books out the wazoo (laughs) Uh, me too but if I don't change the way I if if I don't do some push-ups from the table or or if I don't decide to exercise the rest of me as much as my jaw then it's probably not going to make a huge difference The gospel trains us. It trains us to renounce sinful behavior and to live consistent with God's values, but it's a cooperative effort. It doesn't happen unless we take responsibility, personal responsibility. The first part of this is to renounce, which means to deny or to cut off ungodliness and worldly passions. Paul is talking about sinful conduct and sinful attitudes or desires. And he says, the grace of God gives us the power to cut them off. You see, the idea is that before we came to know Christ, we were bound, we were chained to sin. But through the grace of God, when we come to know him, we now have the power to leave that behind. We now have the power to break those patterns of sin, to to break those addictions, to break those behaviors, to leave the Popeye attitude behind. Oh, do you guys remember Popeye? I'm kind of old, but Popeye, you know, what did he say to olive oil every every once in a while? I am what I am, right? Can't change me. I am what I am. But that's not what the gospel says. The grace of God says, yes, you can, and now you have the power to, and I want you to. In fact, you must. You must cut off. You must renounce. You must deny. And it's not just a a, a law or a burden. What he's saying is, I have just given you the power to do that. You are not that anymore. You are something else now. I've taken you from the kingdom of darkness, and I've called you one of my children. You belong to me now, not that. You are set free. Now start acting like it. When my boys were young, Sometimes they would leave in the morning, and I would look at them, and I would say, <clears throat> "Remember who you are. Remember that you're a justice. Remember who you are." Now you, you may not want to be part of this family. <laughs> when they, when they got into high school, I was precipitously getting dumber each year. Okay, yeah, I was. I got immensely stupid by the time they were 17 or 18. Thought I'd never recover. But then they got to 21, and I got more neurons. Came back around. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. But the idea is that God gives us the power to leave sin behind, truly. I think of the story of the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11 verses 43 to 44 here's what Jesus said when he raised Lazarus from the dead And when he had said these things he cried with a loud voice Lazarus come out and the man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth and Jesus said to him unbind him Let him go. Leave the grave clothes behind. When I live in my sin, after I come to know Christ, it's like I'm walking around bound with the strips of death, with a face cloth over my face. But I'm not dead anymore, I've been raised from the dead. I've been taken from the kingdom of darkness into light. I've been given the power to break these things, and now I need to leave the grave clothes behind. Remember who you are, I told my sons. Remember who you are. You are a son or a daughter of God if you have a relationship with him, and sons or daughters of God renounce or deny or cut off their sinful conduct And their sinful attitudes now it's not just there it's not just what we cut off but it's what we embrace he says you know we are to renounce our ungodliness and our worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in this present age it starts now our eternal life and the way we live it starts now when we come to know him now Paul chooses these three words very carefully and I want you to get this There was a time when a lawyer, can we have a hand for lawyers? I mean, you know, (laughs) lawyers get so maligned in our culture. You talk bad about them. Listen, many of you feel compelled to tell me your latest lawyer joke. I'm just telling you. And they're never good. The lawyer always looks stupid, bad, or, or greedy, right? Until you need one, and then you call me, right? Oh, gosh, I better call him. Well, this lawyer walks up to Jesus and he said, Hey, yo, yo, Jesus. I could do a little Boston, you know. Yo, Jesus. Well, what, what's, the, what's, the, what's the greatest commandment, you know? I mean, forget about that other stuff. What, what's the greatest commandment? Right? And Jesus says, well, Tony, let me tell you. Okay, I'll stop that. But the greatest commandment. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. And the second is like it, he says, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And there's there's three dimensions here. You get that? Love God. Love your neighbor. Love yourself. Right? Greatest commandment. And Jesus says, listen, you get that right? Everything else falls into place. All the law, all the prophets, all the obligations of the Old Testament, they just fall to the wayside because what you have to do is love God. And if you love God and you love your neighbors, you love yourself, that's it. That's it. Well, Paul understands that. And so he chooses three terms here that pick up on all three of those. First of all, he says that we are called to live a life of self-control. How do you love yourself? How do you treat yourself? You live with self-control. Self-control. It means you've got these desires, you've got these passions, you've got, there's still this voice inside of you that wants to take you wayward. But the fact is, now with the power of the Holy Spirit, you are able to live with self control. You don't have to do the things you did formerly. You don't have to live addicted to pornography. You don't have to live addicted to drugs or food or fill in the blank. You don't have to do that. But now you can live a life of self control love yourself treat yourself he then goes on to say that we are to live uh, uh, upright it's the next thing the word means justly it, re- it refers to how we treat another person so so we love ourselves we love other people jesus said and paul says that's what we're called to we're called to live justly or in an upright manner with others and then last thing paul says is we are to live godly Love the Lord your God. Do you see how the parallel it is? All three of those words affect our, the way we treat ourselves, the way we treat others, and the way we treat God. Now, this concept of renouncing sin and turning to live another way is not something that necessarily happens overnight. Though we are declared to be his child immediately, sometimes our habits and our behavior take time to change. Ever realized that before? Yeah? It take time to change and at times our habits and our behavior our sinful thoughts are things that that the Holy Spirit can change as we sit before him in his word but there's other times when it's important for us to gather together because God's grace can flow through others in the body to us to help us The church is a spiritual hospital. It's a place for people to encourage one another. It's a place for people to get help. So we have a couple of ministries here in this church I just want to highlight while we're here that can help us renounce sinful desires and conduct and to embrace the kind of life that God would have us to lead. One of those is an open Bible study that happens every Wednesday night. It's called Oasis, and there'll be a symbol that's popped up there for you. This word, this word of God Paul will describe to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he'll say it's God-breathed. It's created by God. This word of being God-breathed is the same word that's used in Genesis. The very beginning of the Bible, where the ruach of God is hovering over the waters, the breath of God, the spirit of God, the wind of God, it is that breath or wind of God that creates the living creatures, that creates man, that makes man, and the fesh hayah, a living being, a living embodied soul. It gives life straight from God. And it's this term which is used to describe his word. I don't know if you are studying the scriptures on your own or that's, you know, that's something you, you, you're doing well and so forth, but let me tell you, if, if you want some help, if you want to learn to renounce and to embrace anew, one way to do that is to get in front of the word of God and read it and study it and eat it and understand it and wrestle with it and let it convict you and let it encourage you and let it give you power every wednesday night we hang out here for the last 5 years we have been meeting and we have been going through the letters of the apostle paul from his first letter to the church in galatia and now we are in his last letter which is second timothy 5 years 13 letters raise your hand if you've ever been to the Oasis Bible study on Wednesday nights and yeah, none of you the rest of you are lost I'm just I'm just kidding but seriously though that's one opportunity for you to begin to renew your mind that's what we're talking about we're talking about changing patterns of stinking thinking that the Holy Spirit can do as we get before his word another ministry I'm going to talk to you about is our Thrive Ministry we can pop that up on the screen so Thrive is a one-on-one discipleship ministry where we, we connect you to a mature believer and you spend about six months with that person meeting on a regular basis whereby they help to mentor or to coach you so that you can learn more about what it means to renounce and to embrace. To renounce and to embrace. Okay? If you are interested in Thrive, or then come see me. If you're interested in being discipled, to become a student in that regard, come see me. If you're interested in Oasis, just show up. Every Wednesday night, 6.30 p.m., we'd be over there in that big room called the Great Room. So, if we're committed to Jesus, then the grace of God teaches us to renounce and to embrace. The third thing we learn from this passage is in verse 14. In verse 14, Paul says this. Jesus Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. <clears throat> then he goes on to say this, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So God's grace not only saves us and redeems us, it, 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 it not only calls us to renounce and to embrace, but God's grace also purifies us to create a people so the word purify here means cleansed or, or made holy or set apart as belonging to God. It's like God stamps you and says, you now belong to me and I've got to clean up the house. It's the same kind of concept that was used of the items in the, in the tabernacle as Israel wandered in the wilderness or even of the items that were located in the temple. They were purified. They were set apart. They were only to be used for God's purposes, purified. We gain a similar understanding of what Paul means by the use of this word just a few verses later in Titus chapter three when he says this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Now notice this, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of, of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So here Paul is saying it's the Holy Spirit through the grace of God that is washing us, regenerating us, renewing us, purifying us. Taking all of these passages together, we see that through God's grace, we are purified, we are washed, we are regenerated, we are renewed by the Holy Spirit so that we can be a part of Of God's people a part of his family God called the nation of Israel his people in the Old Testament but Paul intentionally says that God is purifying a new people here and that people includes not just Jews but Gentiles and that people is called the church capital C church this local body is one part of that capital C church But he's not just creating a people so that he's got his own tribe. He's creating a people with a plan. He's creating a people for a purpose. And that purpose, Paul goes on to say, is I'm creating a people that will be zealous for good works. Now, unlike those Cretans who were detestable and and were no good works there, right? He's saying, I'm creating a people who will be zealous for good works. In other words, God's plan is that we, the church, passionately carry on the good works of Jesus in this world. I I want you to get this, because this is so important. We are, the church is God's plan A. There is no plan B. We are God's plan A. There is no plan B. Is that not what he meant? when he said to his disciples in John 14, 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to be with the Father. You see, Jesus went on to say, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. Wait, wait here in Jerusalem. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit in you. As a people, you will be my people and you will carry on the good works just that I have and you will do even greater things than I've done because look at all of you. My spirit will not just be with you, Jesus would say, but my spirit will be in you and, and collectively. Now what I want you to do is I want you to think about this in the context of prayer. Have you ever been in a situation where where you're praying for a person or you're praying for a situation and you're praying for God to intervene in that situation? And you're like, God, please change so-and-so's heart. God, please supply this. God, please do this. God, please stop this. And we're praying for God to intervene. And you know what? God does. Thank God he does. But what I'm trying to convey to you is that nine times out of ten, God's answer to you is, okay, go do something about it. What I'm trying to say is that we are his plan A. We are his people, and he created us not just to create us for, you know, to hang out, but but for a purpose, to be about the business of Jesus. So when Emily stands up here and she says, listen, we don't have enough workers to work with the kids, and so we had to shut down a room. Really? Listen, I'm not trying to browbeat anybody. That's not not what I, I... I'm not trying to... It's not about Debbie Downer moment or Stevie Downer... It's not, no, what I'm trying to say is that God has called us to be a people who are zealous for good works. And we are his plan A. The last thing I want you to take from this passage is that if, if indeed we are committed to Jesus then God's grace gives us blessed hope that Jesus is coming back to take us home. In verse 13, he says this. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting the words great God that Paul uses there, it's the only time they're used in the entire New Testament to call Jesus great God. But those words were used by the Romans and other pagans around Titus in Crete to describe their idols, their local gods. And so Paul takes their, their terminology for their gods and he says the great God is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and everything everything that we do Everything that we do, that we've talked about, every work of grace I've been talking about must be viewed in light of the hope of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this whole passage has echoes of Genesis. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we see that God created the heavens and the earth, and he made all the creatures, including man. He made man nefesh hayah, a living being, but more than that, he gave man a special designation, a created for a special purpose beyond all others. He made us in his image. And he gave us the task to, be, to have dominion over everything else, to, 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 to be fruitful and to multiply, and to steward or take care of the resources that he had given us. We became God's regents on this earth Speaking for him, living for him, his hands, his feet, his mouth, his mind, his heart, to all around. That's what we became. But then man decided to embrace a different trinity. Man decided to embrace me, myself, and I. Okay? Man chose his, his own way. And so he sinned in the garden. And since that time, God has been engaged in a plan to restore mankind to the image that he originally created. Now, it's so crucial that you get this. When you were created, there is no other person in the entire world or that ever will be that is exactly like you. You are entirely unique. And each one of you, a unique creation of God, has been stamped on your heart with the very image of God. I think of it as like God putting his fingerprints on your heart, right? And and those fingerprints will never be removed, you were made as an image bearer. But because we also have sinned the sin of Adam and, and we, we, we have fallen just as Adam did, every single one of us, that fingerprint gets crusted. It's like a boat that grows barnacles on the bottom of it and it slows down. It doesn't even look like a boat, right? After a while, if you just let it sit up, it sinks. And it has to be restored. It has to be renewed. It has to be regenerated. It has to be brought back to life, so the great story is that God has made a way through Jesus Christ for us to be restored to the image bearers that we were called to be. This morning, Ty gave me a word. She said, you know, I'm, I had this vision that, that all of us in this room, we're like, we have water flowing in pipes, and, and we keep hearing this drip, this, this, this sound, and we know we've got a leak someplace but we don't know where it is. But we wish we could fix it, you know, so that we could really have living water, right? And, and, and that was right on target with what I'm talking about. You see, every one of us has this residual drip, even when we were the most broken and the lo- most lost. It's the drip of God's fingerprints on your heart. You were made to be my image bearer. That's what you were made to be. You don't even know who you are. You don't even know who you are. You don't know that you're an image bearer. You don't know who you are, but, but I'm going to send Jesus to come and to, to redeem you, my grace, my Holy Spirit, to restore you, to clean the barnacles off my fingerprints so you know who you are. And then we come to this last point. You see, once he clears the barnacles off, all of that's done, and we see who we are, we're now walking toward that point in destiny when Jesus comes back to gather all of his image bearers together it's there. Read the last few chapters of Revelation. We started in Eden. We walked with God. We were his image bearers. We were his regents, and we're going to be called to that new heaven and that new earth with rivers flowing out of it, a new garden of Eden, shall we say. We're going back to that garden as the image bearers that we were designed to be. That gets me excited. You ever felt like this world's falling apart? You can look at it today and you can see that. You can say that. You can feel that way. In some ways, I've got some news for you. We will never feel at home in this world. This world's not our home. When you became part of God's family, when he redeemed you, when you began your relationship, when you renounced and embraced, you see you became a citizen of heaven. Citizen of heaven. And Jesus is coming back to take us to be with him. That hope, that hope of Jesus' return helps us to persevere in a very broken world that is not our home. When you are committed to Jesus, you are a citizen of heaven. That hope gives us joy beyond our circumstances because we know the end of the story. We know how it turns out. We know that God wins. And that hope helps us to live passionately, committed, committed, to continuing his good works in this age despite the circumstances that are around us that hope gives us the assurance and the strength and the power that we need right now to storm the gates of hell it absolutely does so in some today band you can come in some today paul says that christians are by definition saved and trained and purified by God's grace to be his people. A people who are passionately engaged in carrying on the good works of Jesus in this world. So if you are committed to Jesus, that relationship absolutely and positively affects your conduct. We learn to renounce simple behavior and to live godly lives. We are purified to be God's people and we become a people who are passionately committed to carrying on the good works of Jesus in this world we become the image bearer of God that he intended for each of us in other words when we truly follow Christ we find our true purpose we find out who we were made to be and this is the invitation to real abundant life not an empty gratifying substitute or a dry well. On the other hand, I want you to know this. It's important to say that there is no such thing as a Christian who is committed to living an ungodly life. That can sound very judgmental, but it would be be far worse not to preach the truth. This house is a spiritual hospital. Every committed follower of Jesus in this room Was lost and broken and would be lost and broken but for the grace of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is not news to anyone here that there are broken, sinful people. We've all been there. What is news, and good news at that, is that they can be redeemed, that they can be saved. That broken sinful people who were made in the image of God can be transformed, that their addictions can be broken, that there be their, their character can fundamentally change to follow Christ, that their bodies can be healed. That is the good news, and that is what we are committed to in this house. Those are the good works of Jesus to which we are passionately committed. So I ask you, where are you today? What does your conduct and your desires say about your relationship with God? I'm not trying to whack anyone here. I'm just saying, let's be honest. What does your conduct and your desires and your behavior say about your relationship with God? Have you renounced and embraced? Have you left the grave clothes behind, or are you still walking around carrying grave clothes years after you've, you've committed your life to Jesus? Maybe some of you here in this room have never committed your life to Jesus. Hey, listen, today's the day. Don't leave today without saying, Jesus, I want you, I need you, because you do. We all do. Don't let this moment pass. But today, if you're struggling, you know him, but but you're struggling and you want to come down here and you want to leave some grave clothes in the grave and walk out of here free then come down let's pray with you prayer leaders would you come and and join us up front why don't we stand Lord Jesus it's so great to be with you so great to be in your presence we thank you for your love and your faithfulness to us We pray, God, that you will now move in your spirit and touch the hearts and minds of your people here today. In Jesus' name, amen.